Well, good morning again. Children, you're dismissed um, kindergarten, uh, pre-K through fifth grade, I believe. Nursery's open. Um, I just, as you all leave in, I just want to also let you know that um, we, we, the building project, the, the actual planning board, um, and Chris, unless I'm mistaken, I believe the planning board is done with us in a good way. <laughs> We're done with them too, but um, two years, uh, and they pushed it off uh, to the building department, so which will hopefully get our permits. So uh, pray, continue to pray for that. We'd love to have everything done um, this next few weeks, month, so that as soon as the uh, ground thaws, we could begin building and be in our new building. Hopefully, um, it should take a couple of weeks to build. Right, Bill? Blake? We, Billy, about two weeks to build? That's about right. So we'll get our permit April 1st, and Bill Blake will have it done by April 3rd. Get her done. Open your Bibles, please. Philippians chapter 3. Um, we're, we're beginning chapter 3. We're actually halfway through this great book. It's theme, uh, Gospel Joy, as we'll see again clearly this morning. The joy of the Lord, who is the gospel. His name is Jesus. That in him we find true and abiding everlasting joy. And we'll see that in chapter 3 again, verses 1 through 3. And also, as we begin chapter 3, um, you'll notice in verses 1 through 11, actually, is one of the most beautiful, most the most deepest and glorious and wonderful theological truths of this little epistle called Philippians. So we're going to be in it for a couple of weeks. I want to take it slow uh, and look at the beautiful truths of the gospel. And uh, today we're only looking at verses 1 through 3 to set the stage for the rest of the chapter. So Philippians chapter 3 verses 1 through 3 is our reading this morning and our text. May I read it to you. Chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me, is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision, who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. May God add a blessing to the reading of his holy infallible word this morning. This little epistle written by the Apostle Paul, who is now we know is under house arrest, chained to a Roman guard for his faith, day and day, morning and day and night. He's writing this letter to a church he had planted 10 years earlier as the gospel went from Asia Minor into Europe to a city called Philippi. Paul loved this church. They loved Paul. Paul writes this letter with with a heart filled with joy as he contemplates not only remembering the days in which he was there and the church got planted, but the fact that they were joining him together proclaiming the gospel. And the gospel was advancing His heart was filled with joy as he recognized the gospel and Christ, advancing not because of uh, or in spite of, but because of his imprisonment. And although he hopes to be released so he could visit them and, 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 and be with them again for their joy and their progress in the gospel, he is confident, chapter 1, verse 21, that to live is Christ, to die is gain. 
Nevertheless, he reminds them to live as citizens, chapter 1, verse 27, worthy of the gospel by being humbly united together in the gospel. That is seen by their willingness to not be selfish, but in humility, chapter 2, verse 3 and 4, count others more significant than yourself. Look out not only to your own interests, but to the interests of others, just like Jesus did who stepped out of glory and took on flesh, chapter 2, verse 5 through 11, who humbled himself as a slave and went to the cross, not to save himself, but to save us, sinners like you and me. And just as God exalted him, we are to be humble servants of God, allow God to do the exalting, not us. We are to remain humble, just as Jesus said, whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. And in that humility, we are to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Chapter 2, verse 12. Not work it in. It's been God's gift to us by grace. And we are to work it out with reverence and recognizing that it is God. It is God working. He's energizing us from the inside to will and to work, to have the desires that he has and to do things and work for his good pleasures. And part of that is not grumbling, we learned, and arguing. And by the time we get to the end of chapter 2, Paul uses himself as an example of what humble, Christ-centered servanthood looks like as he talks about, if you remember, he's, he's being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of their faith. But then, as we saw last week, he moves away from using the example of himself and he brings up two men, two men of faith, Timothy, his son in the faith, and Epaphrodites. Pastor Ricky mentioned not only two Seinfeld references, awesome, but three things they shared in common. They shared the examples of of gospel care. They deeply cared about the gospel. They deeply cared about the church. They loved seeing Christ proclaimed, and they had genuine love one for another. It's a mark of a believer. Examples of gospel care. They had examples of gospel camaraderie. They worked together. Paul and Timothy, serving the Lord tirelessly as one father to a son, mentoring in in the gospel. Ricky said this, he said, gospel character will be developed when mature Christians pour into new believers and walk with them to maturity. He calls Epaphrodites, my brother, fellow worker, fellow soldier, member of the family, an ambassador, a fighter for the gospel. Last, he said that we shared examples of gospel centrality. Loving and caring uh, for others coupled with serving with one another can only happen when you keep Jesus at the center, the gospel at the center of it all. Again, Pastor Ricky said this very uh, wisely and um, helpful. He said, gospel centrality is what cultivates a gospel care for others. It is what creates gospel camaraderie. Why? Because the gospel, when the gospel is central in all that we are and all that we do, that becomes our driving force, end quote. Now today, what Paul is doing in chapter 3, he's moving from their shared participation in the gospel to to the exhortation to the unity, to, to the example of Christ, to the expectation of believers to live out, to work out their salvation, to the examples of Paul, Timothy, and Epaphrodites, to the explanation of the gospel, the truths the theological truths of the gospel, as we will see the beginning of that, verses 1 through 3. So from exhortation to expectations to examples to explanation, the truths of the gospel we'll see in verses, chapter 3, verses 1 through 11. But for now, 
As we look at just a couple of verses, two headings, two subheadings, the command to rejoice, we'll see that in verse 1, the contrast of true worship, verse 2 and 3, Paul will denounce the false teaching that's going on in the church, uh, and and, and they need to be warned about, and secondly, he'll describe that which is true. So there's our outline this morning. So number one, if you turn to your Bibles again to chapter 3, we see the command to rejoice. Paul begins chapter 3 with a preacher's favorite word. Finally. It literally means as for the rest. In other words, he's addressed many things up to this point, but there's still more to say. Sort of like I'm almost done, but I'm not there yet. And many of you have heard me say one last thing and then preach for 10 more minutes. It's biblical. Right here. (laughs) Just give me, yeah, two more minutes. I'm almost done. It doesn't mean the message, though. We have two more chapters in the book. And now, like before, he begins this new section with this woven theme of rejoicing. Paul said he was filled with joy as he wrote about their shared participation back in chapter 1. He says in verse 18, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached. And that I'll proclaim, yes, I will rejoice. I'm, I'm, I'm joyful. Chapter 2, verse 17, he says, I'm being poured out as an offering. I'm glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you all should be glad and rejoice with me. I just love how Paul weaves in this, this, this theme of gospel joy into every single layer in this wonderful epistle. It seems like whenever he's got something new to say, or he wants to change the subject, he interjects this responsibility that we have as children of God to rejoice. And here in our text, he's building first on the joy over the examples of Timothy and Epaphrodites. Particularly, we saw last week, Epaphrodites almost died for the serving of the gospel and the proclamation of the gospel. And Paul begins this new section uh, that really outlines doctrinal statements, uh, uh, doctrinal issues, and particularly troubles that they may face. We'll look at that in a minute. And he says, finally, my brothers... Rejoice in the Lord. I'm, I'm going to weave this in no matter what I say. No wonder he goes on to say, to write the same things to you is no trouble to me. I, I, I could write this all day long. It, it, it's, it's, it's not a problem for me. It's no trouble for me. And look what it says. It is safe for you. But what I want to notice first is, is Paul says to rejoice where? Where is our rejoicing? In the Lord. Meaning our joy comes only through Jesus Christ. Jesus himself in the upper room. John 15, these things I've spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full, may be complete. The verb here is in the present active imperative. So it's saying that the church, the gathered assembly of believers are commanded to continue to always rejoice, regardless of circumstances. Believers can and should always rejoice in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. His perfect, his incarnation, his perfect life, and his work on the cross as our sacrifice and substitute. For Paul, Jesus is the true joy. It's where he, it thrives. It's, it's the basis, the foundation, it's the substance, the heart and center of joy is the Lord. Why? Because the Lord himself is both the occasion and the source. 
He is both the occasion and the source of his joy. Gospel joy is independent of adversarial adversarial situations. Paul was in jail, chained to a Roman soldier. Paul began this church singing after being beaten with rods with joy unto the Lord. And we learn that gospel joy is received and maintained only in the in the person of Christ, in the union, in the work, uh, in the union of Christ, and in the person and work of Christ. Man cannot give you that. This world cannot supply that for you. Only Jesus can. Remember, a couple of weeks ago, we defined gospel joy as this heartfelt affection produced by the Holy Spirit as we pursue and sustain it through our worship through our delight and satisfaction in the beauty and glory of Jesus. Why? Family, it is because of Jesus' perfect life that's been imputed to you by faith. His righteousness given to you. His wrath-absorbing, atoning sacrifice not only brings us eternally and, and securely into the family of God, we are fully and completely forgiven, accepted, and loved, but we also now as children have the absolute assurance and hope that nothing, nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Nothing. Not death, not life, nothing. Nor angels, nothing above us, nothing below us. And therefore, as children of God, we also know that nothing can come into our lives. Nothing that doesn't pass through the hand of our Heavenly Father for our good and His glory. Notice, too, that Paul says it's rejoicing in the Lord is safe. It's safe. It's a safeguard against those traps those who would want to attempt to undermine our faith and take our joy. There is safety for all believers in the joy of the Lord. Matthew Henry, he is a Puritan expositor. He wrote this, The joy of the Lord will arm us against the assaults of our spiritual enemies and put our mouths out of taste for those pleasures with which the tempter baits his hook. End quote. Paul's exhortation, Paul's command here echoes the language of the, of the psalmist, Psalm 32, 11. Rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord always and be glad. Psalm 33, 1. Sing joyfully unto the Lord. In both cases, the psalmist is worshiping God for who he is and what he has done. James Montgomery Boyce. Joy is the supernatural delight. Joy, I love this. Joy is the supernatural delight in God and God's goodness. Paul's command to rejoice here in chapter 3, verse 1, I believe goes back. Goes back to what he said and forward to what he's going to say. The joy of the Lord is the affections of our heart produced by the Spirit as we savor delight and and find satisfaction, beauty in Christ will, will keep us safe from falling into disunity. We talked about that. It is the only joy that will keep us uh, 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 walking and living as citizens worthy of the gospel. It is the joy of the Lord that will keep us grumbling. But it's also the joy of the Lord is a safeguard to what Paul is going to say in the next two verses, watching out for the false teachers. Paul is concerned and turns his, turns his concern to those who are teaching falsely, 
false doctrine that they may come into the church and ruin the very joy he is commanding, he is exhorting us and the people of God in Philippi to have. False teachers can rob, listen, false teachers can rob Christian joy. Bad teachers, wrong theology will evaporate joy. Why? Because false teachers put help us, or at least drive us to the place where we put our hope in the wrong thing, in the wrong place. And, only, and the only way to maintain and sustain joy in all circumstances is the truth of Christ, the truth of the gospel. Rejoice. Because there is a bigger, there, because there is bigger and better truth in the promises of God and the truth of the gospel than in the sorrows and in the sufferings and the, and the brokenness, anxieties of this world. Rejoice. The command to rejoice. Look at the contrast. Denouncing the false. Paul moves from these words of, man, listen, I, I'll keep writing this for as long as I'd like, as long as I, it's helpful to you. I'm going to keep writing rejoice. And now he turns and has severe, uh, strong words and of warnings. Verse 2. He just turns and says, look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. He's describing a teaching of false teachers who are teaching a certain theological perspective in three strong terms. And the metaphor that he's using is an interesting one. We know that, and we've seen it in other parts of the New Testament, that he's describing what's called Judaizers. Jewish teachers who were infiltrating the church, who tried to impose the moral law or the law of God, the ceremonies and, 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 the, and the commandments and rituals upon Gentile believers in order to be saved. They, they've been a source, a problem, a, a false teaching. Uh, since Paul got started, he's been battling them. You can look at the letter, uh, the epistle of, of Galatia, uh, to the church of Galatia and Galatians. Uh, and combats this heresy of adding to the gospel. Three times, Paul used the verb, look out. Maybe in your Bible it says, beware. He used that to describe those who would add legalism to the gift of salvation that God has provided to us by grace alone. Our good and gracious God has given us salvation by grace alone. In fact, the imperative mood of the verb is this idea of constantly, like never giving up. You must always, always, always keep looking out for this false teaching. You've got to watch. There are those who will come in and want to place rituals and rules upon the church in order to have a relationship with God. He tells them first, look out for the dogs. It's not your little doggy at home. It hops up on your lap or maybe a bigger dog just sits by you and your pet. That's not the kind of dogs Paul is referring to here, right? So get that out of your mind. It's not your pampered puppy. These are dogs he's talking about in the first century are rather like uh, coyote-like scavengers who, who ran the, the, uh, uh, the, 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 um, you know, the hillsides of, of Israel who, who fed on roadkill and garbage. And, and they were vivid images in that days of, of the unclean. They were dirty. They were diseased. They were scavengers. And they would eat whatever they can get their hands on. They were, they were dirty. They, they traveled in packs. Those are the dogs that he's talking about. In fact, the Jewish people 
often referred to Gentiles in, in a derogatory way. Derogatory comments about people have been going on ever since the beginning. Uh, they would refer to Gentiles as dogs because they were impure. They were unclean. They were considered uh, not pure in their faith with God and not part of the covenant promise. And Paul takes this powerful metaphor that was used against the Gentile and turns it around. Says that the Judaizers were unclean dogs. They are the ones who stood outside the covenant blessing. They were mixing the pure with the impure, the, the, the purity of the gospel with ritualism and moralisms, and that would actually make people impure. Paul says in Galatians 1 that it's anathema, a condemned, cursed for adding to the gospel. Look out for them who would want to add to the gospel. Then he says, look out for the evildoers. Not just character evil, but the things that they do. Right? Their conducts. There there are these dogs that that are working hard to infiltrate the fellowship with false doctrine, trying to persuade people from the truth of the gospel. You're saved by grace. This statement, though, again, just so you know, is another kind of jab toward these Judaizers because the Judaizers had this pious slogan that they were doing the works of the law. They used to distinguish, you know, we are the, the pious Jewish people, the Gentiles uh, were, were, were the evildoers, the Gentiles, or even the non-conforming, non-observant Jews were, were out there, but we were doing the works of the law. So by calling Judaizers evildoers, Paul was saying that rather than doing the works of the law, they were actually out there doing evil works. And the irony was that for all their attention to the works of the law, it actually made them evil workers, doing evil things, and therefore spiritually Gentile dogs. Harsh words. Harsh words. But this is what Jesus said in Matthew 23. Woe to you, scribe and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you travel around on sea and land to make one proselyte convert. And when, he come, when they become one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourself. Adding to the gospel is a serious matter. And these, cho- these folks, these Jewish Judaizers, trusted their salvation by the, by the works by their law works, they performed their, they were, their, their pride in their exemplary lives, and it was a hindrance to the gospel. It is, it is a, a stumbling block to true faith. And we are, we are always to be diligent here at King Chapel, from this pulpit right here as well. And we as, your, as children of God, as, as members of this local body, we need to be sure of what we're reading what well, we are filling our minds with, the podcasts that are streaming on our phones against those who would add to the gospel, which robs us of gospel joy. Look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers. Number three, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Now, some of your translation, it, it, again, <laughs> this is, these are harsh words. These are harsh words. Some of, the, some of your commentary, some of your translations have the word mutilators and some of them have false circumcision. And the, the reason why, because there's a word play going on here in the original language. The word mutilation is a strong word, katatomi. And, and the reason why I say that, I'll, I'll tell you why. Because it, that's verse two, where it says the mutilation, 
or to mutilate the flesh. In verse 2, that's verse 2. In verse 3, if you look with me, it says, for we are the circumcision. Now, both those words, both those words have the same adjective, tome, at their root, which means sharp or cutting. But the preposition, as you can hear, katotomi and the other word is, is peritomi. So you see there, there's, a, there's a, and I'll get to the reason why I'm saying all this, not to impress anybody, believe me, I'm not impressive at all. But uh, you'll see in a minute. The preposition to those, both those root words make a huge difference. And that's what Paul is trying to say. So in chapter 3, verse 2, the word mutilation or a false circumcision, the direction of the, of the preposition is down and off. I won't say any more. Talking about circumcision. The implication is mutilation or, or, or emasculation, right? You guys get the point if your eyes are squinting right now, okay? But the direction of the word circumcision in verse 3 is around. So what Paul is saying, and he's making no uncertain terms between them and us, he said the same thing in Galatians, if you all think that you can add to your salvation by your circumcision, you might as well just take it off. Mutilate yourself. That's all that it means. He said the same thing in Galatians. Same thing, because you might as well cast yourself. Why? Because circumcision means nothing to God in the sense of faith in Christ. A man or woman comes to God for salvation, forgiveness of sins by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, plus nothing. Circumcision has no value apart from genuine faith. Now, let me, let me just take a side note here, just quickly tell you that circumcision for the Jewish people was important, and it's in Scripture, and it's a command in the Old Testament. It goes way back to Genesis 17, when God gives his promise, this covenantal promise to Abraham. He will, he will give him a land. He will give him a lineage. The Lord himself will come from him, and he, and he gives him the sign of circumcision as, a, as the, a sign of the covenant, chapter 17. Verse 9, and God said to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you, throughout your generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall circumcise in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. So God gives this intentional sign to the Jewish people in the covenant he makes with them. I don't think it was Abraham's first choice. I'm just saying. It might have been like, how about a nice ring, a signet ring would be good. God's like, no, we're going to do circumcision instead. So we went through Genesis. We pointed out circumcision has a reason, has a purpose. God doesn't do things without purpose. It is to, number one, perpetuate the memory of the covenant. Number two, it's consecrating, distinguishing the seed the offspring of Abraham from Gentiles in preparation of the, the promised seed. Galatians tells us who Jesus is. And third, the reason for the covenant, uh, the sign of the covenant of, of circumcision is the cutting away of the foreskin was to symbolize the putting away of sin and a reminder to walk in purity. Now remember, it is the seed of man that perpetuates our sinful nature from one person to the other. And the outward part of a man's procreative organ uh, was cut off, cleansed, in order to remind them each and every time that sin need to be dealt with at the deepest 
part of our being. Therefore, when you took an eight-day-old baby boy back in Israel, back in those days, and you circumcised him at eight days, you're reminding yourself that we're a sinner in desperate need of cleansing. There was blood, uh, there was a sense of, of, of washing, and that man needed cleansing at the very core of his being. It was purposeful, it was meaningful, and it pointed to something. But let me tell you, very important. Circumcision was never, ever, even in the Old Testament, never meant to replace faith. It was never meant to be your ticket to heaven, their ticket to heaven, their gateway into a relationship with God. How do we know that? Because God required and gave Abraham the sign of the covenant of circumcision after Abraham believed God in faith and it was credited, imputed to him his righteousness. God's righteousness was given to Abraham. He was justified before circumcision. It's always been faith. Old and New Testament, it's been faith. Romans, Galatians, lots of verses we could look at. I will not. Circumcision does not negate true belief and faith, even in the Old Testament. Yes, required under the law. Yes, required under the Old Covenant. Yes, Jesus comes, brings a new covenant where he purchased his people by his blood. The keeping of the law in its rituals and ceremonies are no longer a, a must-do in order to have a relationship with God. The only requirement is repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and by grace you are saved. And what happened at times, the Israelites placed such confidence in in possession of their physical mark that they felt, you know what, that is all I need. I'm secured in my relationship with God. And their hearts at that point, because it was external, their hearts strayed away. In fact, prophet after prophet came and prophesied against Israel. Uh, Jeremiah 4 talks about the uncircumcisions of their hearts. Jeremiah 4.4, circumcise yourselves to the Lord, Jeremiah says. Remove the foreskins of your hearts, O men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem. Lest my wrath go forth like fire and burn with none to quench it because of the evil of your deeds. Out Out of the heart comes evil deeds. When the spiritual meaning is lost and the ritual is followed, Paul says, listen, it's mutilation. Just do it. Now, before we judge on the external, before we judge, let's relate, right? The church has a long history of legalism, of moralisms. What is legalism? Paul says legalism is living under the law, under the rules. Not referring to law obeying, but law relying. I'm relying on the law. When we think we could win God's approval, we could win God's acceptance through our moral performance, our obedience, our service, that's going to somehow make us right with God. We are crushed under the burden of that law, and that's what it means to live under the law. Do's and don'ts don't make you a relationship with God. Self-righteous legalists are super aware of everyone's sins around them, but they don't want to look at their own, right? They're, they're judgmental because they put themselves above you because they follow certain laws, and you should too. That's legalism. Listen, our sin, the breaking of God's moral law, deserves punishment, period. 
No amount of good works, no amount of going to church, no matter, no matter how much you pray, read your Bible, give money, or whatever you do is going to change the reality that we as sinners deserve God's just wrath, period. The only thing that's going to change that, the only thing that will make us acceptable before God, cleansed, loved, forgiven, and, and, and so that we don't have to bear the weight of God's wrath for our sin is the unmerited grace of God found in the person and work of Christ. That is it. Ephesians 2.8, for by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works that anyone should boast. Perfect time for some Tim Keller quotes. I love Tim Keller. Religion operates on the principle, I obey, therefore I am accepted by God. But the operation principle of the gospel is I'm accepted by God through what Jesus Christ has done, therefore I obey. Slippery slope, very important. He writes, after creation, God said, it is finished, and he rested on the seventh day, right? After redemption, Jesus said, it is finished, now we can rest. End quote. So Paul has this warning, and then he gives us three distinguishing marks of a Christian. The true worship of God, the true worshiper of God in contrast to false teachers, teaching. He describes that which is true. And look what he says in verse 3. We are the circumcision. Paul knew, we're going to see this next week, very clearly. Paul knew the weakness of his legalism and trying to get right with God through following rules and regulations. He knew what it was like to live that way and he knew what it was like to have the grace of God in his life. We're going to see that clearly next week. And he wants to tell us, he wants to remind us that he's been down that road. But we are the true circumcision. We are the ones who not had necessarily physically but spiritual circumcision every christian everyone who's been born anew every renewed born again however you want to put it those who had to uh, uh, put their faith and trust in christ and have the holy spirit dwelling within them john chapter 3 has had a circumcised heart it happens when we're born again regenerated in the moment we trust christ we are true descendants of abraham born anew by faith and now by faith in christ we've been made right romans chapter 2 Verse 28 says this, pretty clear. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, that would go for all of us, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter, not by the law. His praise is not from man, but from God. Galatians chapter five, verse six, for in Christ For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything but only faith working through love. Galatians 6.15. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, that outward sign or that outward uh, circumcision. He says, but a new creation, the, 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 the renewal of the Holy Spirit. And in God's economy, that was more important. Both Old and New Testament was with a matter of the heart, faith and trust in God. We saw it in um, Jeremiah and Ezekiel, Old Testament. Now listen to the description of of Ezekiel talking about the new covenant, this circumcision of the heart. He writes in chapter 36, Ezekiel 36, he's talking about the new covenant. He says this, I will give you, 
a new heart. And the new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you the heart of flesh. In other words, I am going to circumcise your heart, remove that rebellious nature, give you the Holy Spirit, and make your heart soft to will and to do of his good pleasure, Philippians 2, to the will of God. What does that look like? What is a true characteristic of, of a heart that's been, been cut away and given the Holy Spirit? Well, he gives us three. Gives us three things, doesn't he? Number one, with a circumcision, at the spiritual work of the heart, who worship by the Spirit of God, right? It's about internal, not external. Children of God, true believers put emphasis on the inner worship, not the external worships and rituals of worship. Now, we do things, we, we, we have certain order, we have certain things that we do, certain rituals we follow, we're going to take communion, that's a sign. I mean, we do things, but what's most important to those who are true worshipers is that our hearts have been changed and our desire now is to worship and to praise our God. And Paul is saying, listen, it's, it's crystal clear. There are those who are identifying themselves with outward conformity, and there are those who identify themselves with inward spiritual worship. Listen, it is God's Spirit in us that leads us to worship. It is the inner regenerating work of the Holy Spirit, God dwelling in us, that makes us worshipers of Him. John chapter 4, Samaritan woman, you know the story. Jesus says to her, you worship what you do not know, we worship what we know. Salvation is from the Jews. But, Jesus says, the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth for the Father's seeking. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. It's got to begin with us. Excuse me, it's got to begin with him. Excuse me. It's got to begin with him searching after us, seeking those. He chose us. He bestowed his love. He showed us the wonderful grace and truth of the gospel. He takes the initiative. He comes and seeks us. He comes and empowers us to to worship his infinite value and to give him all the glory that he deserves. That's a work of the Spirit. Now, he's talking about worship. He's not talking about Sunday morning only. We should be empowered by the Spirit here as we worship together. Romans 12.1 says that we are to present our bodies all the time, everything we do, as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So family, let me ask, is the Spirit of God dwelling within you? Romans says anyone who doesn't have the Spirit of God, that does not belong, he does not belong. She does not belong to him. Have you confessed and repented of your sin? Have you trusted in Christ? Have you been born anew? Do you worship by the Spirit? If so, you can rest assured that God is enabling you, giving you the power and giving you the desire to worship and to praise him. False worship, outside activity only, religious, ritual, um, outside only, boasting in human achievement. Self-righteous people do it all the time, but genuine Holy Spirit-filled people, empowered by the Spirit, worship God with the heart and boast only in Christ. Look what it says next. Worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus. Now, that word glory, you can underline in your Bibles, is not the usual Greek word for glory, doxa, that we find in chapter 2, verse 11, to the glory and praise of God the Father. 
It's a different word. It actually, a better translation really is boast. Right? And Paul is saying, look, there are those who are boasting of good works with boasting of those of the good works of Christ. There are those who boast in what they do, and there are those who boast in what Christ has done. And what's interesting in this text and in this context is that's exactly what the Holy Spirit, Jesus said, was going to do. John chapter 16. You ever run into those people? <laughs> Man, I am spirit-filled. I am Filled with the Spirit. I, I've done so much good. You should see all the things. I got this going on. I got that going on. I am just so filled. Like, really? Get over yourself. John 16. When the Spirit, Holy Spirit comes, the Spirit of truth, he'll guide you into truth, all truth. He will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak and declare to you the things to come. He, the Holy Spirit, will glorify me, Jesus talking, not boast in self, not glorify self. He, the Holy Spirit, will glorify me and he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Galatians 6. But for to me, Paul talking, but far be it to me to boast in anything except in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. We boast, we exalt in Christ. He saves us, he loves us, he snatches us from the road of destruction, and it's only by his substitutionary sacrifice on the cross that we are redeemed, we are saved, we are rescued from the just wrath of God for our sins. We don't glory in possessions, we don't glory in achievements, our giftedness, we glory and boast in Christ. 1 Corinthians 1.31, those who boast must boast in the Lord. This text not only speaks about legalism, but family, it, it, it should remind us continually against the temptation to derive our justification, our acceptance before God, our forgiveness from God by our own religious works and doing of our own. We're reminded here that salvation is of God alone. Alone. And we have a tendency, do we not, we have a tendency to always go back, to revert back to legalism, to revert back to self-atonement, self-salvation, which either leads us to pride or despair. Depends how good you're doing. So if you say, I need Jesus, but I need this. You know, I need Jesus, I need this. You're not glorying, you're not boasting in Christ. You're glorying in yourself, not in the sufficiency of Jesus, but in yourself. Paul says, there's one thing that all Christians do, and they boast in the cross, Jesus, we sing this song, right? Jesus paid it all. Not some, not part. I'll add. Give me my chance. I'll get it right. Jesus paid it all. A genuine mark of a Christian is one who's been born of the Spirit, empowered by the Spirit, and one who is Christ-exalting worship. So let me ask this question as we move to the last point. Exalting Christ, are you boasting in the cross? Your family, your friends, are you making much of Jesus? in your life and in your language and in your talk and in, your, in, in the way in which you communicate and share the gospel, are you making much of Jesus? Worship by the Spirit, glory in Christ, no confidence in the flesh is the final thing. Now, the word confidence is a settled persuasion about something. The word flesh in our text here, look what it says, no confidence in the flesh. That word flesh, sarks, can mean a few things depending on the context. It could mean the outer body. It could mean the sinful nature. 
What Paul is talking about is that work, that human achievement that we do naturally without any kind of divine enablement. So family, let me me tell you something and remember this. There are only two religions in the world, only two. The religion of divine accomplishment, salvation by grace alone, and the religion of human achievement, works-based salvation. And all religions, all unregenerate people fit into the category of human achievement, working toward my justification. You could be a, a, a non-Christian, you could be a non-believer, you, could, you don't even, even if you don't believe in God, you are still at points in your life trying to justify yourself, save yourself, get some sort of value and meaning and worth in yourself. That's your religion. Works achievement. Feel good about me. Tim Keller, since we're on a roll. To ground your identity in your own efforts and accomplishments, even in the amount of love you have for Jesus, is to have an unstable, fragile identity, end quote. It's not about you. It's about him. You see, the human heart is, is, is prone to trust things, other things instead of Christ for our salvation. And if your achievement your sense of worth is what you do or your identity is in your accomplishment, two things are going to happen, right? You will either really do well, I got goals, I'm, I'm working hard, uh, and, and I've accomplished it, I've climbed the ladder, I've done well, and all you people under me should do as well as I do. Or you set out for your accomplishment, you set these goals and you're working toward it, and you have not achieved it. And you either try really hard to get there and your whole life you stress out and you have a heart attack or you just give up in despair. But if your boast is in Christ, your confidence cannot be in yourself. You must either, you, you must, we must never place our confidence in external comp- things or religious observance, moralism, whatever, and acceptance to God. Our identity is found in the accomplishment, the moral perfection, beauty and glory of Jesus and Jesus alone. Not in what you do, not in what I do, not, but not, not in anything you do, but what he has already done for you. A true believer glories and rejoices in what Christ accomplished and him alone. In other words, listen, our hope, our joy cannot be in what we do, but what Christ has done. That's our hope. That's our hope. That's our assurance. That's our joy. That's our certainty of belonging to the people of God and being made right with him. Now listen, let me close with this as the band comes up. Listen here. I I do really have one minute left. There is safety, Paul talked about it, in the joy of the Lord when we're resting in him alone. To be so full of gospel joy that no other offer appeals to us. To have tasted what is so good, so deeply in the perfect work of Christ that no other taste will draw us away. That we'll try to achieve our own salvation. The Judaizers depended on their obedience, on their rules, on their rituals, on the law, on circumcision to make them acceptable before God. And by contrast, True believers do not put their confidence in anything they do, but on what Christ has done for them. What God, through Jesus Christ, has done, that is our confidence. So let me ask you this morning, what are you placing your confidence in? What are you placing your confidence in? Is it on Christ? Or is it something you have done? 
It is him, it is him that who, who died for you and rose for you, or is it something you do? The time of communion will be a time of resting and relying on the finished work of Christ for our salvation, for our justification. Our communion time, again, is for Christ's followers. It is a time where we confess our sin, our need for Christ alone. And if you're here this morning, you've been justifying or trying to justify yourself, now's the time to say, I'm done with that. I'm going to rest in the sole work of Jesus alone and be empowered by his spirit to live a life worthy of the gospel not the other way around. So we'll spend time, the band's gonna play. We'll spend time in prayer. Oh, the band's not gonna play. I'm used to saying that. I've done it for so long. Bring your cup if you have your cup. Luke chapter 22. And he took bread and when he gave thanks, he broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, he took the cup after they eaten saying, this cup is poured out for you in the new covenant. In my blood. So this is what we're going to do. We're going to spend some time as Jesus commanded us and shows us that the bread is symbolic of his broken body. Blood, uh, the, the cup is the symbol of his blood that was shed for your sins in the new covenant. So we'll spend some quiet time as a church just praying, confessing our sins, repenting from our sins, repenting of, of self-justification. And then we're going to celebrate Because we don't want to stay there. We want to celebrate. Christ forgives us of all our sins. And we'll do as he said. We'll take the bread and we'll take the cup. Let's just quietly go before the Lord. And now, Father, as we take of the bread, remembering your broken body, Lord Jesus, and we drink of the cup, remembering, Lord Jesus, the blood that was shed, we pray that our hearts would seek after thee. We thank you for your provision. We thank you, Jesus, for your atonement. And we celebrate the truth that our sins are forgiven because of the accomplishment of Christ alone. His body that was broken, his blood that was spilt on behalf of sinners like us. We celebrate you. We love you. We worship you. And we thank you in Jesus' good name. He took the bread, broke it, gave thanks, and said, take, eat, this is my body. Opening away from your body. With the cup he took and he said, this is the blood of the new covenant shed for the forgiveness of our sins. Let us drink together, family. Let's respond.